1: The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 27 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, August 2nd. First, I talk to Jonathan Miller, Managing Director of BitTrade and BitTrade Labs. BitTrade is a digital platform for the everyday Australian to trade and manage their blockchain assets, including Bitcoin and Ether. BitTrade Labs, on the other hand, is an incubator for blockchain and distributed ledger projects. It is a mission of both companies to empower people with the tools and knowledge to trade blockchain assets. As a founding member of the industry body, Australian Digital Commerce Association, they are committed to the growth and mass adoption of blockchain and cryptocurrencies in Australia. And then I'll be talking to Comsec economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market for the week. But now let's talk to Jonathan Miller. Uh, Jonathan Miller, tell us about BitTrade.
2: Hi, Leon. Thanks for having me. BitTrade is a digital currency exchange. It's a platform for the exchange of digital currency. We do that slightly differently to some other platforms. We're a broker. We aggregate books together. We help you get access to all the global cryptocurrency exchanges in one interface. And we also have an innovation arm. We, we consult to businesses and help them understand, implement, and use blockchain technology.
1: Oh, that's the big trade labs, isn't it?
2: That's right, yes.
1: So can you tell us how that works?
2: So we found that there's a huge amount of appetite and interest for blockchain. And we're innovators. We love using blockchain. We use it in our own products. We believe in the power of this technology beyond just cryptocurrency into the operational concerns of all sorts of industries and we work with businesses to help them implement integrate use blockchain and cryptocurrencies inside their operations or bring those through to their own customers
1: that's fascinating now what particular types of businesses would you be working with
2: well i'll give you a really really present example it's a engagement we've got at the moment we partnered with a business called imparter that's a little bit of a mouthful we've we're, we're working with them. They're an employment services industry uh, uh, professional business. They're an employment services business that seeks to create infrastructure for employment. They currently provide contract services. So let's call that HR services for short-term contract work. They do that already in an existing business. They want to expand on that to add payroll. And there's a particular interesting problem there for the kinds of businesses and the kinds of employees that they service. And that is, there's a chicken and egg problem between getting your job and getting a bank account. And they're looking at blockchain in particular to do two things for them. One is empower their platform with transparent auditable proofs for contracts, for work done between employers and employees. Secondly, to use crypto tokens, not just cryptocurrency that you know, but a specific token for payment of wages. And that token will be backed by the Australian dollar, like an asset-backed token, that they will be able to then essentially connect employees with employment opportunities before they have a bank account. They can use cryptocurrency as a digital banking platform that they're not fully responsible of maintaining. So it reduces those costs. It reduces those risks. It's a really interesting area, and they think it's got global scope.
1: That's fascinating, but are there security issues there?
2: So the blockchain, and, and I must say that the technologies that we're all looking at here—they're all experimental. They're very new, and so therein they have risks. However, you can develop live projects using this uh, using this technology, and it's really about how you actually inform and 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 uh, educate the people using it. So that's not just the businesses that we're advising, but it's the end users who will be, then be on their platform, because essentially they'll be responsible for their own bank account if they if they use this particular service, for example. And in so doing, they don't have the same structures of security that you're, you're used to. You know, you forget your password, you call the bank. This is a different way of doing that. It's absolutely secure, but it really comes down to design, and, and that's, a you know, as security... Um, is part of every bit of technology you build. That's just something we always look to. And there's a lot of problems with digital security in the current framework. The current framework, you hear every day that the existing internet, there's breaches. I mean, just the other day, a big hotel chain gave away pretty much the credit card details of all their customers. That's bad. That happens with traditional technology. And you can solve some of those problems with blockchain. Definitely not all of them. Really, it comes down to good design.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, what are you doing in terms of... uh... Uh, digital currency trading. I mean, it's, it's been on the rise, I believe, starting from Accenture.
2: The, the, look, I think that there's there's a huge amount of interest in this technology. And therefore, if you think about that, this is a speculative technology. They come often, these technologies, these blockchain technologies, with their own tokens. You think of big names like Bitcoin. That's a very prominent name. But other platforms like Ethereum, um, Ripple, Stellar, um, there, are, there are so many. I don't want to list them all. They are all essentially experimental platforms with 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 cryptocurrencies in, embedded inside those platforms, and and that's why people are coming to this. They think that this is a it's kind of like seed investing. The next thing that's happening is businesses are using tokens to raise money instead of going to traditional marketplaces. They're going to global marketplaces with tokens. That is now becoming a regulated arena that's really welcomed because. We don't want to have bad actors in these kinds using these technologies. It's very hard to mitigate that, but regulation is a good way of doing so. And so what you're seeing is this trend of businesses using cryptocurrencies, using blockchains, and we help people tap into these markets. We help people um, not only tap into local markets for these, but global
1: markets for cryptocurrencies and other tokens. But the issue is, I mean, with regulations, I mean, we're talking about global and so we're talking about other countries. Where are the jurisdictions? I mean, what are the rules? I mean, how do you, how, do, how does, how's that managed?
2: That and- is a fantastic question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the regulation is evolving. We're part of that conversation There's a wonderful industry body here called ADCA. We're a, f- a proud founding member of ADCA. It's about working with regulators. Right now, I think you have to look to the major jurisdictions. And I think Australia is one of these, you know. Um, we've got a very long tradition of, of strong regulation in this country, um, be that from banking and otherwise. I know there's a lot of, you know, stuff in the news at the moment about banks, but the point is we have author, you know, Authorities that are at arm's length from the government that can enact and help regulate industries where the consumers are at risk. And that is true for, for all things, including securities and, and cryptocurrencies as well. So we look have to look to the major regulators. We obviously have to look to the US. We obviously have to look to the UK and Europe. Um, places like Japan, incredibly pro, and they are looking at how to roll out legislation that allows for the rise of this innovative technology without hampering it. Because there is a... There is a an, Uh, A very uh, attractive um, argument, which is that we should just umbrella, uh, wrap existing legislation around this technology. But I believe it's beyond that. It's like saying the internet um, can be bridled, but this technology is very much part of the internet. It needs regulation that suits that and that has to be at a global scale. It has to be interoperable.
1: Right, but that would also mean you need the same rules everywhere. And isn't that an issue?
2: Well, I think we've got different rules for, I mean, you look at the tax framework. And that causes a lot of problems. You see businesses going to certain locales. And I think there will be businesses who look to certain locations to domicile their businesses that are blockchain and cryptocurrency related, where there is a favourable market condition. So Australia has an opportunity here. It has an opportunity to create a a robust framework that allows institutional investors and individuals, mums and dads, to come in and make use of this stuff, to understand it, to use it in their businesses, to invest in it if that's appropriate. And and at the moment, we're, we're seeing the start of that. But really, right now, there's an opportunity to lead as a regulator. And that's what we want to see from Australian regulators.
1: Now, uh, what we're seeing uh, is there's, there's an emerging cl- class of do-it-yourself investors in Australia.
2: I think that's right. We're, we're actually, you know, we're really proud of a, a, a culture that can look at, investing and, and 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 taking risk, taking appropriate, reasonable risk because they believe in an idea. That's about backing something. And, and I think that there is a great amount of opportunity in, in this new space, this blockchain space. And there's some great current frameworks for that. We're actually using the crowdsource funding legislation. You might've heard things like crowdsource equity. These are new ideas in Australia. We're using that legislation to go out to Australians and say, if you are interested in blockchain, invest in us don't invest in necessarily all of your money in one project you can't do that it's about reasonable investment and backing things you believe in and we can be that um, opportunity for people to understand to get exposure to the blockchain industry get exposure to, exposure to the cryptocurrency industry um, and doing so in a reasonable way in a regulated framework so you can you can learn more about that at equitize it's a platform we're using or from our own website at bittrade
1: uh, that, I mean, that's interesting. And, I mean, so what sort of uh, th- investment have you raised?
2: So we've only just started this campaign. It's a um, campaign to raise a minimum of $500,000. We have currently close to $100,000 pledged. We are um, seeing investors from all walks of life. We've got our own customers who are coming to back us. They believe in us. We've got institutional investors who are really excited about this space and we're, we're seeing interest from, from people who believe in cryptocurrency and people who believe in blockchain. And that's a really interesting differentiator for us. We're not just a cryptocurrency exchange. We're, we're a consultancy. We understand this market. And, and there are people who understand technology who, really, who are really interested in, in how you can grow businesses in this space.
1: Well, that's interesting because it would suggest, wouldn't there, that a lot of the investors in uh, in BitTrade would actually be holding investments outside their institutional super fund, wouldn't that be right?
2: I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, you can, with your own self managed fund, invest in these in these opportunities. The, the crowdsource funding framework allows individuals to invest. You don't need to have an institutional investment with an asset a manager behind you. You can have a direct exposure as an individual or through an appropriate vehicle into businesses like ours, early-stage businesses.
1: Jonathan, that's fascinating, and thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate being on here, and if you want to learn more, you can go to btrade.io. That's B-T-R-A-D-E dot I-O.
1: Thank you. And now let's talk to Comsec economist Craig James. Well, Craig James, what do you see ahead for the market this week?
3: Well, it's clearly the Reserve Bank dominates proceedings. You've got the Reserve Bank board meeting yes, coming out on, on the 6th, and then you know, sort of on, the, on the Friday we've got the statement of monetary policy uh, coming through. So you know, really the the economic data will take a back seat to to the Reserve Bank over this week. Now, it's not our expectation that the Reserve Bank will cut interest rates again. We've had two interest rate cuts in, in two months over June and July, and um, yeah, now is the time, I think, for, for reflection for, for the Reserve Bank. Uh, they shouldn't continue... To go in there barrel a gate in terms of cutting interest rates because you'll get to a situation where you may need you know, so the firepower you know, so in case something goes wrong with the, the global economy. But um, a lot of interest is going to be in, placed in the statement of monetary policy on, on Friday just what sort of changes the Reserve Bank is going to make in terms of things like economic growth, the, the job market, um, uh, inflation, and you know, so the like. The expectation from the Reserve Bank is that inflation is going to stay super low for a long period of time. So don't expect any interest rate hikes any time, really for, for a number of years. Uh, but in terms of interest rate cuts, they remain you know, so on, on the agenda. So uh, they usually make you know, sort of some assumption in terms of interest rates when they make those um, economic uh, forecasts. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see what, what uh, interest rate they, they assume uh, when the, that statement of monetary policy is released on Friday.
1: Uh, Certainly there's an expectation that the Reserve Bank will cut rates again in November and possibly again uh, next year.
3: Yeah, I, I think some of those expectations are probably getting a little bit far ahead of themselves. We do know that the world changed on May the 19th, the day after the the election. There was a lot of uncertainty about the election, a lot of uncertainty about whether there was going to be uh, changes coming through in terms of taxation, whether it was uh, negative uh, gearing, whether it was um, uh, the dividend payments you know, coming through. Um, uh, and I, I think a lot of businesses, a lot of investors, a lot of consumers um, were caught about doing anything ahead of the election you yes, know with the uh, election yes out of the way we we certainly saw it you yes, know the Commonwealth Bank uh, a big change on the Monday with the, the phones running hot you yes, know sort of in investors and, and people wanting to to get back in and start doing things you know so again so um, it, it's going to take some time for, for that um, confidence to be to show up in terms of the uh, numbers but I think it's right for the Reserve Bank to just see what, you know, sort of impact the um, election out of the road, you know, sort of has, has placed. And... Um we do know that some, some of the indicators have shown the improvement. Um, um, on Monday, the, the job ads figures will come through. Um, uh, in June, we had a 4.6% growth in terms of uh, job ads, the biggest gain that we've seen in the order of 18 months. Now, we do know that the job market is taking more and more of a focus from, from the Reserve Bank. Now, we've had that big increase in terms of job ads in June. If we get, see a follow-up in terms of July... That will be the day before the, the Reserve Bank board meeting. So um, uh, it could be proved to be very, very important about um, what happens on Tuesday and the sort of statement that the Reserve Bank makes uh, as well when yes, it releases it at 2.30. Uh,
1: the interesting thing about the job ads is it, it's also contrasts contrast with the latest figures for unemployment which show it stayed flat at only 5.2% and, uh, and there were only five hundred net 500 mm. jobs added
3: yeah i suppose we always see you know, so the um change from from month to month in terms of uh, jobs and um uh clearly you know, so that's that's always going to be the, the case you're going to have a strong result one month and then you're going to have um some payback you know so the next month and i think that's what we're seeing in terms of um uh, the the jobless rate and the employment uh, figures but um uh, i suppose what we also need to be remind ourselves is the, the progression in terms of the job market first we do need to see businesses more confident about taking on, on new workers you know so once that confidence shows up in terms of job ads we know that the hiring process starts and it can take three or four weeks you know, for the people to respond to the um, uh, the, the job advertisement um, then you go through the interview process and um, and then you get people you know so coming on board in terms of the new organization so that whole process can take you know so five or six months so the fact that job ads increased in june i think is very much a a positive um but we always got to remember that the jobless rate that we very much focus on you here in australia is a lagging indicator it basically reflects the decisions made perhaps five or six months ago right
1: right right is there there any other data we should be looking at for the week
3: well if we look at you know so the the call of the tape run through the board you know so job ads um Performance of uh, managing uh, p- p- performance, you know, sort of indexes, you know, sort of the, um, the purchasing manager surveys of services, that comes out on Monday as well. And the Melbourne Institute reading on inflation, you know, sort of that also comes out on Monday. Uh, we've got the re- weekly reading of consumer confidence on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, we have the latest lending figures. Um, they were soft in in May we'll see whether we see an improvement already starting to come through in terms of the the June figures but one thing that we do know that first home buyer activity is at seven-year highs and um, we'll see whether we get some early signs of investors coming back into the market. Uh, We've got some Reserve Bank speakers over the week as well. The Assistant Governor, Lindsay Bolton, in terms of business services, uh, she's going to speak on on, um, Wednesday and then on Thursday we've got Michelle Bullock in in, uh, Toowoomba. Um, The other things to watch out for, the Reserve Bank New Zealand, they'll have their own interest rate decision on Wednesday and they could actually sort of um, follow the lead for other central banks including our own by cutting interest rates and then we've got the Chinese inflation figures coming out you know so sort of on Friday and the other thing to focus on while we've got the true economic indicators that we always tend to focus on uh, a good gauge in terms of how the economy is faring is what um, companies are saying about their own operations and we are starting to move into the profit reporting season.
1: Indeed indeed and how do you expect that profit reporting season will go?
3: yeah it's it 's not going to be you know, sort of overly you know, sort of chipper, I would have thought i th- would have thought you know, sort of that the mining companies will do you know, sort of okay because we have seen commodity prices at higher sorts of levels but um what we have seen yesterday you know, sort of over the particularly you know, sort of the first half of uh, this year is a degree of uh, softness in the economy because of that uncertainty in terms of the election but um I think it 's going to get very much down to um the statements that come out by the companies about the, the way forward, whether they've seen any early indications of a thick up in terms of the economy and what their expectation is over the next six to 12 months.
1: Uh, and a lot of that will come down to consumer level, consumer confidence levels, won't it?
3: Well, it will, and and consumer confidence has been actually a little bit above average in recent uh, times. And uh, if uh, consumers remain sort of uh, reasonably confident about the outlook, and that's what we've seen in terms of the the weekly surveys, even in terms of the monthly surveys of consumer confidence, if uh, consumers remain a little bit positive... The job market continues to to improve. Perhaps we see that translated in terms of higher wages Then we might see that in terms of spending in the economy. And then the Reserve Bank will start to feel a little bit more comfortable about the fact that um, the economy is picking up from uh, a lower base.
1: Well, that'll be fascinating to watch. And as you said, uh, a lot of the uncertainty was removed from the market on May the 19th. And I noticed the market has been performing, setting new records since that time.
3: Oh, yeah, re- record highs for, for, for the share market. You know, it's, uh, it's taken a long time to come through. You know, It's just taken 12 years for the re- re- records to be broken. But um, it is an encouraging thing. And, and a lot of people do believe that um, the share market has that um, predictive ability that the investors are looking at uh, the economy. Over the next 12, 18 months, and of course they're buying now on that expectation that um, uh, the economy is going to improve going forward. So if the, the share market's got it right, then we will see an improvement in terms of the economy uh, later th- this year and through 2020.
1: Right, okay, and which, is a, which is a very, very good sign for Australia, isn't
3: it? Well, yes. Um, the fact that central banks around the world you know, are looking to either, they're either cutting rates or looking to cut rates is very, very much you know, a positive adds stimulus to, to the system. Central banks are doing whatever it takes to basically make sure growth is good, and they're able to do that. They're able to um, maintain low interest rates or cut interest rates for the simple fact that inflation is well and truly under control. Uh, no matter which country you look at it, in terms of uh, key uh, global and in, in industrial con- countries, uh, the inflation rate is at very low levels and that gives the um, central banks the flexibility to be able to, to cut interest rates.
1: And so in a low interest rate environment, we can expect uh, markets will do, continue to do well.
3: Well, yes, and um, I, I, a lot of people say, "Well, you yes, know, is this the time for the share market or the time for for the housing market?" Well, you could basically, you know, to look at both um, of the the key asset markets and and see uh, good possibilities that lie ahead. We've already started to see some stabilisation in terms of Sydney and Melbourne, yes, home prices. Uh, they were going through the roof, and then they were you know, falling quite significantly. Now, it appears as though a degree of stabilisation is coming through and in terms of the, the share market. Um, yes, um, we've got governments, uh, policymakers of all description, the central banks and governments, which are looking to um, you know, stimulate economies and, and keep economies moving at a fast pace.
1: Well, it'll be fascinating to watch. And uh, Craig James, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Not a problem at all. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, US stock markets have caught a cold from Donald Trump's latest Twitter outbursts which suggests that his patience with negotiations with China is wearing thin. Investors had not been betting that the two days of trade talks currently happening in Shanghai would reach a resolution, but some had hoped for the groundwork for more detailed talks could, could be laid. That hope now appears to be forlorn. On the British side of the pond, new Prime Minister Boris Johnson's insistence that the EU must ditch the backstop and insurance policy to avoid a hard Irish border if there is to be a deal Push sterling to a 28-month low against the US dollar. And Australia's consumer price index rose by a better-than-expected 0.6% in the June quarter 2019, according to the latest Australian Bureau of Statistics figures. This follows no movement, 0%, in the March quarter 2019, with a rise driven largely by automotive fuel, up 10.2%. This took Australia's inflation to 1.6% year-on-year growth. The consensus expectation was for 1.5% annual growth. And the Australian share market has finally beaten its record high set nearly 12 years ago, prior to the global financial crisis. The benchmark ASX 200 index has eclipsed its previous intraday high of 6,851.5 set on November 1st, 2007. The ASX 200 jumped to its highest ever level, 6,875.5 points on Tuesday, The broader and older All-Ordinaries Index already reached a record high last week. The ASX200 took less than 10 minutes after trade opened on Tuesday to reach the record, lifting 0.6% to 6,867 points in early trade. It covers the top 200 companies on the Australian share market and is considered the benchmark index. The broader and older All-Ordinaries Index already reached a record high last week, also recovering to levels not seen since the global financial crisis smashed stock prices around the world. And new housing approvals dropped 20% in the year to June to a six-year low, as tighter curbs on lending and falling prices hit development activity and made for the weakest 12-month period since 2013. Total approvals slipped to 187,515 in the financial 2019 year, nearly one-fifth below the 232,915 total a year earlier. As approvals of both attached homes, apartments, townhouses, and semi attached dwellings, and of standalone houses also fell to a six year low. And Australian bosses, who are found guilty of taking advantage of employees, could end up behind bars. The federal government has confirmed it is drafting legislation targeting serious worker exploitation after a series of high profile underpayment cases. The news instantly attracted the ire of business groups who argue that any legislation should be nuanced enough to take into consideration cases of genuine error. And Australian household incomes have gone backwards since the global financial crisis, the newly released Household Income and Labor Dynamics Australia survey reports. Several years of tepid growth mean that adjusted for inflation, the average Aussie household is $542 worse off than it was in 2009. Living standards have stagnated, as more Australians face life below the poverty line. Dependence on the age pension has also risen, despite an increased focus on compulsory superannuation. More than 30% of households now rely on the age pension. And Netflix, Stan, Amazon, YouTube and other digital players could be required to produce more Australian programming under a review of regulation aimed at creating one set of rules across the media landscape. The government has committed to a review of the media regulatory framework, one of the recommendations of the Australian Competition Consumer Commission's Digital Platforms Inquiry, and the need to create a new set of rules that can appropriately account for the massive wave of technology change in the past 20 years. The current standard mandates commercial free-to-air broadcasters, such as Nine, Seven West Media and Network 10, broadcast 260 hours of content for children under 14 years old and a further 130 hours for preschool children. The ACCC's final report on digital platforms, delivered last Friday, found digital platforms are more than distributors or intermediaries in Australia. However, the report will make little to save newspapers or journalists. On the area of concern central to the Inquiry's establishment, the decline in journalism, the recommendations are relatively minor. A code of conduct to treat news media businesses fairly, reasonably and transparently. Stable and adequate government funding for Australia's public broadcasters, ABC and SBS. Government grants of $50 million per year to support original local journalism. And tax incentives to encourage philanthropic support for journalism. The reality is that there is little that governments can do to reverse a technological disruption of a journalism business. The internet has made it clear that news organisations aren't primarily in the journalism business. The stories they produce play an incomparable social role, but their business model is to deliver an audience to advertisers. Social media and search give advertisers a better tools to target messages to more precise groups of potential consumers. It is a phenomenally better mousetrap. And Crown Resorts are sliding 3% every day on allegations of money laundering and dealings with Commonwealth government agencies to fast-track visas for high-rolling gamblers as the Morrison government has ordered a National Integrity watchdog to examine a string of allegations about the conduct of Commonwealth officials linked to Crown's casino operations. The allegations would be probed by the Australian Commission for Law Enforcement Integrity. Attorney General Christian Porter stressed that that did not mean he had evidence before him which supported the allegations raised by the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age and 60 Minutes. He said it was now a matter for the integrity body to decide whether the allegations warranted further investigation. The Coalition and Labor opposed an early motion from crossbench MPs to establish a parliamentary inquiry saying it was totally ill-equipped to deal with the allegations and it would be detrimental to run both at the same time. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie told Parliament the stories published by the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age concerning Crown Resorts were just the tip of the iceberg. Mr Wilkie likened the organisation to the Vatican, saying it appeared to be an independent sovereign state Where laws do not apply. Independent Senator Jackie Lambie said she was not surprised at the revelations about government officials and the casino's operations, declaring the affair was proof of the need for a federal commission to investigate corruption. According to the reports, two Australian ministers approached domestic border control authorities in a bid to speed up immigration clearances for Crown's big spending overseas customers. Jackie Lambie, among the independent lawmakers who collectively hold the balance of power in Australia's Senate, said the report showed the country now needs a national anti-corruption body. In a statement, OSTRAC says it's actively addressing the significant risks of money laundering through casinos, particularly through casino junkets. And former Prime Minister Paul Keating has lashed government MPs lobbying for a delay in the increase of superannuation guarantee as monkeys and described the prospect as grand theft In criticisms echoed by the nation's biggest retirement fund, Australian Super, Mr Keating also argued it was highly unlikely employers would use any delay of the guarantee to pay higher wages. The Morrison government has faced mounting internal pressure to consider delaying or dumping the legislative schedule for increases in the rate of mandatory superannuation from 9.5% to 12% by 2025, or even consider dumping the compulsory savings regime for lower-income earners. Mr Keating, whose government introduced the superannuation guarantee in 1992, said the impact of holding back the increase dwarfed the controversial franking credits reform Labor took to the last election. And the corporate regulator says the reputation of Australia's banks will continue to suffer in the short term as fresh examples of misconduct are unearthed and a backlog of legal actions is cleared. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission, Sean Hughes, said banks were making the right noises about transparency and cooperation, but there was plenty of litigation to get through first. ASIC is pursuing the banks over dozens of matters under its new mantra of why not litigate, with around 125 cases flowing directly from the Hain Royal Commission. This includes the action against NAB for its role in the fees for no service scandal. More cases are in the works, and the public should brace themselves as they come to light. Among the growing caseload being shouldered by Mr Hughes is the regulators' action against ANZ for allegedly gouging $50 million in fees from customers for shuffling money between their own accounts. It says the bank charged 460,000 customers unlawful fees more than 3 million times since 2003. Among the customers it incorrectly charged were farmers, the bank's own staff and the bank's retired staff. This coincides with Treasurer Josh Frydenberg fast-tracking legislation to end the payment of grandfathered commissions to financial advisers by 2021, rejecting Labor's claims that the government was dragging the chain on implementing the Banking Royal Commission's recommendations. A ban on grandfathered commissions would bring all existing financial advice contracts in line with the 2013 ban on commissions under the future of financial advice reforms. The final report of the Hain Royal Commission recommended repealing the grandfathering provisions as soon as practicable. And Qantas and Virgin Australia are raking in some of the highest fees per per passenger in the world, according to a new report. Australia's airlines are envied globally for their ability to get more money out of passengers above basic airfares, with both Qantas and Virgin Australia landing in the top 10 for highest revenue per passenger, thanks to extras like seats with more legroom, meals, drinks and baggage fees. Qantas scoops up $1.6 billion annually, or $59 per passenger. Virgin Australia calls in $50 per traveller. And the Australian consumer's obsession with quality coffee is ushering in a high-end espresso machine sales boom. Coffee snobs seeking to craft a barista-worthy single-origin brewed cup at home are driving up the sale of home coffee machines by 20% annually, with a market now worth about $250 million dollars. Stores such as Harvey Norman are cashing in as brands demand between $5,000 and $6,500 for the machines and coffee aficionados begin to chase beans with a passion similar to the pursuit of wine connoisseurs. And Cash Converters says it will record a statutory net loss of between $2 million and $4 million compared to a profit of $22.5 in 2017-18. It is also tightening its lending standards after a credit risk review. Shares have been hammered. Without additional costs, cash converters' pre-tax profit would be between $18 million and $20 million. This is due to writing off a $1.6 million investment in a third-party loan management software platform, $1.4 million of restructuring costs, and $5 million for bad debts, which have been brought forward after a credit risk review. Cash converters incurred a $16.4 million class action settlement during the financial year, and is still waiting for the outcome of the lynch proceeding. Legal costs are running at about $3.2 million for 2018-19. And rare-earth producer Linus caused quarterly sales revenue and production have slipped, with recent trade tensions between Beijing and Washington curtailing demand for its ore in China, as the car market there slows. Linus reported a 4.6% fall in revenue due to softer prices for its product in the June quarter, during which the company focused its sales on strategic customers outside China. China was a key driver of the result, with trade tensions slowing the growth of the country's auto market. And Vodafone Hutchison has posted a half-year loss of more than $150 million in its first financial results since a competition watchdog made the shock decision to block the proposed $15 billion merger with TPG Telecom. But the company insisted performance had remained stable in the face of significant headwinds and said it was committed to the merger, which remains a possibility pending the outcome of a federal court challenge. In the six months of June, Vodafone reported a loss of $153.4 million, a 66% increase on the same period last year, when losses were just $92.3 million. The company is yet to turn a profit since it was established 10 years ago. The firm, a joint venture of Hong Kong-based C.K. Hutchison and UK-based telco giant Vodafone Group, saw revenue fall 1.7% year-on-year to $1.738 billion dollars. Average revenue per user per month, a key measure for telco companies, also fell more than 5% to $34.52. However, cost cuttings, coupled with new accounting standards, saw earnings before interest tax, depreciation and amortisation increase by 14.3% to $584.6 million. In Adelaide, Brighton's net profit after tax was down by as much as 30%, to between $120 million and $130 million for the year ending 31st of December 2019. It has also revealed a likely $100 million non-cash impairment. The profit decline is due to worse than expected conditions in residential and civil construction in Queensland and South Australia, increased raw material costs and one-off shipping costs associated with the cancellation of import orders for cementous materials given the softening volumes in Victoria. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Rod North, founder and managing director of Bourse Communications. North has survived four market booms and busts, working in the financial services industry for 30 years, and he'll give assessments of which way the market will go in 2019-20. And I'll be talking to Alex Joyner, chief economist of IFM Investors. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, talking BizBrizz, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.
0: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
2: Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues